cheers to another episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. I'm your guide, AJ Weinzettel, on this journey of stories showcasing the people behind the wonderful world of wine, where we dive into conversations ranging from terroir, viticulture, to favorite music, superpowers, and more. Please enjoy this episode of the Wine Notes Podcast. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's this summer so far, it's like to me it's like been the perfect summer i was driving down here uh, i had like a 45 minute drive with all the windows down sunroof open and i was just thinking the uh, it's got to be somewhat of a perfect growing season right now you know once we got past spring and may and a little bit of showers in june yeah it's gorgeous out there they, my, my only uh thing is, is that it's august 1st as of this as the meeting right now and i don't recall how we got to august 1st already it went by pretty fast but it is gorgeous out there and hopefully uh, there's time still before harvest to get you know the paddleboard in or get that day hike yeah. in and enjoy it before before it turns <laughs> <laughs> yes most definitely uh so i did bring a, a blind wine great can i pour us a little bit yeah please okay so as i tell everybody you know Whatever you want to say about it, you can. It's totally up to you. Uh, you know, it's always fun to just bring a little something just to, to talk about. And uh, I, I try, I don't always succeed, but I try to bring something that has a connection to you. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, like I said, sometimes I, I fail, sometimes I <laughs> succeed. But uh, anyway, I, I hope you enjoy. Uh, thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. I like the nose. Oh, I could enjoy that on a day like today on the patio. Yes. And I th before we went on air, I said, you know, I am not, I am certainly not a sommelier. And so assessing things, it's like, I do start with yum or yuck. And so right now <laughs> I'm at yum. Good, good. Yeah, That's yeah. always good. Um, seems a little off dry to me. Um, it's got some good medium weight to it though. So that's why I think you can enjoy it on its own, right? It's not just, you know, sometimes when I see, uh, a rosé of this color, there's always that chance that it's just going to be very acid driven. It's just going to rip the enamel right off your teeth. Right. Right. Um, and I, I do personally like balanced, uh, rosés that are sort of that utility player. They should be, you know, you should be able to enjoy them sort of on their own, but right. they also have to have enough acid to be food friendly. And, and you know, that's my personal style, right? right? right. Uh, so this kind of fits, I think you said you try to bring things that are connected, <laughs> at least from a stylistic standpoint, this seems uh, on par with sort of my, my own sensibilities. Um, I don't know if I can, yeah. I mean, I'm not a big Pinot Noir Rosé guy. That's why I don't make one. I, I feel like this is not Pinot Noir Rosé. I'd be surprised. And if it was, maybe there's a little Pinot Gris in there. I feel like it could have a little bit of a blend. I, I'm getting some Pinot Gris on the aromatics. It seems like there's an aromatic piece to it. Right, right. Um, or maybe some Gewurz or something. There's definitely something in there uh, that's <laughs> not uh, that differentiates it, I would say. If I'm wrong, I'd be surprised, but I also would not be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... I'm wrong often. <laughs> no, 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 that's totally fine. Um yeah, I think this is pretty sleek. Whatever yeah. it is, um, I, I don't. I don't think I want to venture on, on varietal because I know I'll just. Uh, I mean, whatever reds in there, I, I, that's the, that's not what I'm picking out. I don't. I mean, I don't think it's an orange wine. I mean, I think this is very clearly a, a direct press rosé, but it has. There's something very floral and tropical in there that yeah. I dig. Yeah, very nice. Well, at, at the end, I'll 
reveal what it is. And uh, you know, oh, I can't see. wait. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, I was close on some things. Yes. Um, <laughs> so ever since I've been doing research on your story and whatnot, there's been one question that I just wanted to start off with. Oh. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to ask this question. So how is the modeling career going for a six-two <laughs> winemaker whose size is thirty-four by thirty-four and a shoe size of eleven? One, that's some good research. <laughs> that's some good research. And, uh, <laughs> um, well, so it's funny. Uh, I do get that question a lot. It's one of those things where I, can't, I just can't shake it. Right. Um, in my 20s, while I was still in Chicago, so I, I, my first gig, part of the reason, just as a quick segue, I named my brand Ricochet because of my existential crisis. So I've had many different careers. And in my 20s out of college, I wanted to be a writer, and I got a paid corporate job to be a writer, an executive summary writer for Prudential Healthcare. Right. So right. basically writing the executive summary for General Motors, you know, and their health insurance policy. Ugh. No one reads those things, right? Right. Uh, but it was money and I was out of college and great, but I quickly realized I was not <laughs> I was not a, a cubicle guy. Right, right. And somewhere around that time I was at the Shed Aquarium in Chicago with my wife. And it was a uh, it was like a gala event kind of thing of a fundraiser, and my would be future uh, representative came up to me and says, "Here's my card. I like the way you look." And I was confused. I didn't know what was happening. And I said, right. "You know, at that point, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm flattered, but I'm actually with my wife." <laughs> <laughs> and my representative said, "No, no, no, fool. I I'm, I work for Ford Models. Oh, okay. And even I, you know, a veritable troglodyte when it comes to fashion." <laughs> knew who that agency was, you know, that's the agency of like Kate Moss and Calvin Klein and all that stuff. So I went in and when I was like 24, 25, uh, I just started, I became a a model and now everyone takes that (laughs) to this. There's a, I don't know if it's a romanticized image, but like people just assume like it's all catwalk and it's all this. And, you know, at best, I was doing a Bloomingdale's, you know, ad in the Sunday Circular, you know. Right. But it was a thing. Uh, I got to travel. I went to, I lived in Miami for several months, uh, the good months, like January through March. Nice. I almost made a soap opera. Oh, my um, Actually, the guy who got the gig ended up in that show, This Is Us, and got an Emmy. So I kind of like to think I was close to getting an, an Emmy. Wow. Like this close. That's... Um. So anyway, it was just a, a frivolous part of my life. <laughs> and, and then uh, somehow, uh, I actually blame a, a, a really good friend of mine. He was a reference when I worked at Domain Serene. Mm-hmm. And uh, Drew Voigt, who hired me, called him as a reference. And my friend said, make sure you ask Eric about modeling. So I was leaving <laughs> it all behind to learn how to make wine. Right, it was right. not something I necessarily was like, not unproud of, but you know, it's a weird thing. Right. And so I literally like, get out of the car, and Drew's like, same as you. First question, what's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> um, and now most recently, I was uh, – actually, you might, you might find me uh, – my daughter just saw me on TV. I'm in a, like, Oregon State Credit Union TV ad. Well, congratulations. And so I'm doing it again. So <laughs> because my wine brand went from being a side hustle to the, to the real thing, right. you know, I still need a side hustle. Got to have side hustles. So um, I'm back at it. Well, congratulations. <laughs> you're, you're, you are the Cindy Crawford of winemaking. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, the margins are better, so that's good. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so back in February, 
I was at the Oregon Chardonnay celebration. I was sitting around, you know, a group of people, and they were uh, telling me about this indie winemaker celebration that was going to happen, you know, for uh, Labor Day weekend. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, really? And then I, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, what, you know, when is it? You know, who's all is going to be there? Somebody brought out their phone and is like, here's everybody that's coming. And so that's kind of when I started to hear more about you and, you know, uh, your story and your brand. And uh, I was, I ended up going to Italy over Labor Day weekend and I was crushed that I couldn't go. Uh, but how, what was the thought process between, I mean, coming up for the indie winemaker? Um, yeah, so the original, so basically the idea is, you know, where we currently are in the winery, we're in a, an industrial area. Uh, we, there is no tasting room here. Um, I'm now up, at, after four years, I'm up to 2,000 cases. Like, my, my brand is growing and it's growing nice. strong. Right. Um, but, you know, you need venues to sell it. I still very much like a lot of my uh, indie wine peers and colleagues, you know, we hustle. I mean, I do the Beaverton Farmer's Market on Saturdays. I do the Mac Farmer's Market. I do whatever pop-ups I can get. I do whatever, you know, festivals I can get right. because I don't have my own place. You know, I rent, I rent space here. Um, right. And so getting the brand out, um, I, I think people vaguely have an idea of how hard that hustle is, but... You know, the truth is, is because everyone always thinks, too, that, you know, because wine is kind of romanticized, that we're always, like, sort of partying and having a good time. And generally speaking, if I'm – I'm not selling vacuum cleaners, right? right. So it is, it is fun, yes. but it's exhausting. Yes. And um, what I have found is that, you know, we'd start doing these events and whatnot. There's a lot of folks out there that – you know, I'm at 2,000 cases, but, you know, there are a lot of folks that are just starting out like I did – uh, when this was a side hustle at 150 or under 500 cases, and they're they're eager to find an audience, um, and then you also see like we're all kind of like going to like similar events, and so it just seemed to dawn on me that the a rising the rising tide lifts all the boats. Uh, what's really cool about Oregon, I think, that differentiates us from some of our other regional peers, is that it's you know we're competing for shelf space and right. for buyers. But we're collaborative, um, right. and we share. You know, there are no necessarily secrets. Um, people, we share ideas of like, how did you make this? Or you know, I'm not an expert in method champenoise. You are. Like, tell me about it. You right. know, those are not. You know, so there, there's already this collaborative ethos. Correct. So, back last, the last Thanksgiving. I do have a, I have a wine club and I, I, uh, can host them to come like do a pickup. But again, I can't do like one of those big Thanksgiving open houses here at the winery. It's just not the right space for it right. either. Um, and so the very first indie wine mixer was just four of us. It was me, uh, Jackalope, uh, Gonzalez and Mejita. And we, in, in about a week or two weeks, I put something together at the, locally here at uh, Mac Market. And we just right. took their mezzanine and it was kind of like off the cuff. Like, let's just, let's, let's throw the pasta against the wall and see what happens. Right, right, right. And it was great. Perfect. And so, and, it, and it, we're all friends and we all like had fun and we walked away. We all made money. We all sold wine. And so it dawned on me, well, Memorial Day weekend is also one of those weekends. Right. And again, I don't have any, I don't, where am I going to go? And so I don't I don't know how I got up to twenty wineries, but in my in my 
you know, dusty memory. Uh, around the time I was putting it together was also the, uh, the Oregon Wine Symposium. And I was kind of asking if people would be interested. And within days, I had a list of 20 people that would be interested. I mean, it, it just caught on fire. And people said, hey, if you're doing this thing, I, I want to be part of it. Um, and I just took the reins. I mean, I found the venue. It was here in McMinnville at the Bindery, a lovely venue. It ended up working out perfectly because it's across from the Atticus. It's right off of 3rd Street. So it was great for locals that right. don't need to drive. Um, everyone got to just, they paid a booth fee and then design your own table. So it was still kind of everyone could show their own individual verve. Right. Um, and, you know, I just... Originally, I was I thought you know I'll collaborate, but it was just one of those things that it was because I, I've had event planning uh, experience in my life. I just kind of took the ball and said, you know what, I'm going to try my best to to get the points of service down and and make sure this is a really rad event. Um, and it turned out to be way better than my own expectations. Um, I'm a pretty self-deprecating person, so like, uh, and so, but it was two days, noon to five. Saturday and Sunday of that weekend, and we were busy noon to five. That's great. Uh, people stayed for the entire time because they wanted to taste all the wines. We had a food truck out there, uh, two different ones for both days. Um, people sold wine. People had a good time. There were no problems. It was not pretentious. It right. was really just sort of authentic, and um, I don't know. I, it was really um, it was a lot of work. Yeah, there's, oh, a part, sure. there's a part where I kind of burned out a little bit, like, and I made myself go on vacation the weekend before. I went to North Carolina, dipped in a lake with some buddies. Nice. <laughs> like, I forced myself. <laughs> um, but uh, in the end, because I just wanted to be perfect. It's kind of, there's a stress there. Uh, but once you kind of let it become its own thing and relinquish control, uh, it is what it's going to be. Right, right. And, it, and thankfully... I mean, it was really magical. And leading up to the event, I had I had a waiting list. I still have people asking if they could get a booth because the word spread and and like I, you know, the theme is there are a lot of people trying to eke it out and right. trying to and whether they're trying to do it full time or it's still a side hustle, they're trying to present their craft and all they want is that space exactly. Um, so we're doing it again. I already have I already have it booked for next year. Nice. Um, I, I'm trying to find the bandwidth to, to do a version for this Thanksgiving. We'll see if that pans out. Um, just to, just to kind of keep that sort of indie wine, uh, vibe, uh, front of center. Right. Uh, and it's a really good, I mean, everyone's making killer wine. It's all different. You know, now we're getting different approaches and different philosophies. And I think that's what made it kind of special too. So, um, it wasn't a festival that was thematic by, you know, it wasn't a, a natural wine festival. It wasn't a varietal. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a Chardonnay only or a Rosé only festival. And those are great events. Right, this right. was more about sort of personalities. Well, it's and, kind of, in, in the spirit of Oregon wine itself. I mean, all, you know, just everybody coming together to help one another out. As yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, it was, and I actually had, and this is the part I, I did not think about. Because for me, the pragmatic side is exposure, marketing, networking. But, you know. I want boxes to, to go out the door, um, just like anyone else. And the weeks after, I actually still just ran into someone at the mar farmer's market I did here in town. Um, I've been thanked by local McMinnvillians because 
you know, they, they get kind of burned out on the tourism and they live here. Right. And they're like, that was really, thank you for like a community event. Yeah. And that, that was not even on my radar, but in retrospect, it really kind of was a community event in a lot of the wine community, but also I li- I've lived here for almost 20 years. This is my community. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted the event to be here to celebrate this town. And, um, so it was cool. And, um, and hopefully we laid the, the groundwork and if I can have more than 20 wineries, we're going to do it. That would be great. Yeah. I kind of heard a small rumor that nobody's allowed to bring balloon animals though. <laughs> Uh, really? Is that true? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, where are there balloon animals? I don't even know. I was so busy. The second day, I would have thought Sunday would have been more chill. I could not leave my own table. I had to put my table next to like the registration to kind of keep an eye. But I literally, I have, I have no idea what happened the second day. Okay. <laughs> so no, if there are balloon animals. Now I am personally afraid of balloons. Right. So is that's, that the rumor? Yeah. That's, oh, so yeah. they don't have to be animals. They can just, oh, like, a, just a normal just, balloon. Just a normal balloon. Yeah. Who told okay. you this? I, that... Nobody told me. I just found it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sniff this one out. Why, all, my, all my fears are going to be out there. Yeah, I don't like balloons. I, I have a fear of, uh, yeah, it's weird. I don't know why. It's, it's fine. It's... They can pop. They can pop, and then yeah. it catches you off guard. It's, it's, like, a, little, what the... it's a little scary. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I totally agree. <laughs> Um, so I know you brought some of your wines. Uh-huh. Should we pour one? Yeah, if you like. Yeah. Um, well, we did it, the rosé for the blind. Would you like to taste mine? Would you yeah. want to kind of do that? Yeah, that would be great. Um, and again, these were opened yesterday. Okay. That's not defense. That's just the truth. Um, yeah, so I, this one is actually kind of fun because um, as part of the narrative in a lot of honest sort of winemaking, because um, people always ask, like, why do you do do it this way or that way. And, you know, I think most honest winemakers and most of, I think almost all of us are, would say, well, sometimes winemaking decisions are made for you. Um, so, you know, when someone says, well, why did you, why did you ferment it in stainless steel instead of air, barrels? We go, well, I ran out of barrels. You know, some, so sometimes those things happen. The universe right. throws you a thing and you have to call it an audible. Right. Uh, this rosé, I call the confluence because, uh, so my very first rosé was lovely and weird and great. It was a hundred percent more ved from Southern Oregon, mm-hmm. and I tried to make it in a Bandol style. And uh, everyone loved that wine. It was sort of savory, salty, red, right? Uh, but then those vines were young, and they didn't survive, like, the years of drought and wildfires and basically shut down, and, and then the vineyard was sold, and so I lost it. But I learned of that in July of 2021. Okay. And that's pretty late to learn that you, lo- you lost fruit. Right. So uh, my good friends at Loop to Loop, Julia Bailey, she uh, she said, "Well, I'm getting Viognier from the Gorge. It's a small site, and they they still have some Syrah and Malbec uh, hanging. Uh, you maybe reach out." So on a lark, I reached out and I said, "Do you have any? I'm trying to make a rosé." And they said, "Well, we have just a little bit of Syrah, some Malbec, and some Viognier." And, and I said, "Well, I need about three tons." And they're like, "Well, we can give you a ton each." And I said. Let's do it. Let's see what happens. Right. And I went out there, and I called the confluence because the site on the, on the label, I put a little Easter egg. Uh, that green diamond there is the vineyard, and it sits 500 feet above the confluence of the Columbia River and the Deschutes River. Oh, that's so, nice. And right across is like the Deschutes River State Park, and it's a really dynamic setting. And it's a 17-acre rattlesnake-infested <laughs> sustainably farmed <laughs> vineyard. Um, and it started off as just like a field blend. I just threw it all together. I mean, that's not a thing. Malbec no. and Syrah. Like, um, no. And, you know, 
the universe gave me a silver lining because that first vintage of it just went and it's again sort of like my style i want it to be something you can enjoy on its own but it's got to be food savvy it's got to be balanced um the malbec in there i think is really interesting because it's i've turned some red wine drinkers who go i don't like rosé but there's enough structure there that i'm kind of turning heads to people who are like i only drink reds Mm -hmm. they're they're buying it um and it's got it's those tropical notes that the Viognier brings. So it's just been fun. Mm-hmm. And it's literally just a field blend. So last year I did the same thing. Just give me what you got, foot stomp the Viognier, pitch it in the press, and let it be what it wants to be. Yeah, and I, I never would have guessed it was a blend of those three uh, grapes whatsoever. And I'm not, I'm not the biggest rosé fan, you know, because that twangy, that bitterness. But there's none of that there at all. And the acidity factor on that is wonderful. And that lingering finish, I just, I really enjoy that. That's nice. Thank you. That's high yeah. praise. Thank yeah. you. I appreciate yeah, you're that. You're welcome. And that's done with purpose. I mean, the, the crazy thing is, with a project like this, um, you know, the very first time, you know, my white wine would be the same. Like, that's the very first time I ever made it. So it's almost like the very first time you do a thing, you know, I want to have high expectations as far as, like, I need to make clean wines. I'm a low intervention guy. I start every project with a natural wine intent, but, like, they got to be clean. Right. They can't taste like a foot, you know, and then I'm not going to hang my hat on, well, it's natural. Like, I've been, the customer, the customer or my supporters deserve good, clean wine. Uh, you can still be hands-off, right? But with a, the first time doing a field blend, I don't even know, like you can't really have expectations right. because that blend doesn't exist in the world. It's a proprietary weird thing. So it could, it maybe it doesn't do as well in the market, but when it does, then suddenly like the second time I made this, right now I, I work for my brand. I'm self-employed. I don't have a boss, but if there's a boss, it's the marketplace. Of course. Right. right. So now I need this second iteration not to be the same as the first, because I like vintage variation, but it's got to kind of hit the same boxes that made the first go round uh, successful, because that's what people are going to expect. There's an expectation there. Right. So it's almost like the second time you do a thing, or maybe the third, like, those are more stressful. Right, because you've set an expectation. You said, um, yeah, it's just basically an, an expectation, a bar, and you got you got to hit it every single time. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that's congratulations. That's that's really nice, though. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. It actually just got. It's, it's getting some good good criticism, and you know, um, those are the kinds of things. I'm not a big, I'm not big in the scores and stuff. But uh, actually, the biggest thing for me is when <laughs> like farmers markets. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when people are like, because sometimes people aren't really into wine, and then they taste it at a wine like that, and it's reasonably priced, and then they go, "Wow, this is one of my favorites." And I go, "Like that's the kind of praise that to me means way more." And and so this has been a fun wine in that regard. It's been like a, uh, uh, it's been a bit a fun way to introduce my brand to people, uh, right. particularly in the summertime and oh, they yeah. want something cold. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, earlier you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Drew Void asked you, you know, the modeling question. So that was around 2004. Mm-hmm. You're coming into Domaine Serene and it's a powerhouse. Yeah. To me, a winemaking team. So we had yourself, Drew Void, and Tony Reinders. Yep. Just explain the atmosphere and like what was oh, yeah. that like? Uh, there's two others in that team too. Okay. So uh, uh, Rob Folan uh, was the cellar master now, and he had Folan Cellars, and he's a esteemed winemaker now down in Ashland. Okay. And uh, Michael Lundin uh, of oh. Lundin Wines. Yeah. That's so right. when I came yeah. on board, and and um, 
I think in that order, Michael uh, was the newest, and then I was like the newest, newest. But uh, they had been there for a couple of years. But that was the team, and that was a really great. Like we had really good uh, chemistry and like camaraderie. Um, I I moved. To, I had never made wine before. I was a restaurant guy in Chicago, right? And so I like to tell people like I knew how to sell wine. I knew how to buy wine. I, I put wine lists together. I certainly knew how to drink wine at that point. I fell in love with Pinot Noir at the last restaurant I was at, um, Crofton on Wells. Chef Susie Crofton came to like OPC in 1998 and immediately created a whole page in her wine list just dedicated to Pinot Noir, which was pretty ahead of the time in Chicago. Of course. Like it was yeah. new, but I fell, I, I, I fell in love with the grape right. because of that experience. Like I kind of owe gratitude to, to Chef on that one. Um, so I moved out here without ever having been to Oregon, and I drove directly three days. I didn't even take the fun way. I took, like, I-80, so, like, I went through, like, Cheyenne, which is not the pretty part of Wyoming. <laughs> no, Wyoming. it's not. Uh, but I, I was booking it out for a gig. And so um, <laughs> I actually remember when I got across the border in Oregon, uh, the, the topography didn't change much. And I thought, oh, man, my wife's going to be so mad because it was just still, like, all kind of brown. And, like, <laughs> I said, welcome to Oregon, and I went... This does not look like the postcards. No. Um, and actually, it's when you dog leg to the Dalles, and then you see the, the mountain, and you go, okay, there we go. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I because I had no context, um, I was just really open-minded. I loved immediately. I've always been a kinetic kind of person. Like I said, I'm not a cubicle guy. So, um, and they put me at it. I mean, it, I, in the three years I was at Serene, uh, starting from that very first harvest, uh, you know, Tony was uh, a very uh, gracious mentor. Um, I mean, he's a busy guy for, I mean, for that brand at that point. I mean, right. still huge, lots of attention, uh, lots of expectations, a lot of pressure on his shoulders, and yet um, always open to me, the guy who doesn't know anything from a wine production standpoint, asking questions. Yeah. Uh, Drew is still, still. Uh, he's my landlord now, but he's he's also a mentor. We still have that that connection, and um, and I tell folks all the time that I mean I learn you. This industry is great, and I still think of it as as an apprenticeship, almost like a guild. You know, you can go to UC Davis, and there's nothing wrong with this, but you can go and just get your bachelor's degree, and then you know you can know how to make wine, um, but maybe you don't know how to run a forklift and stack five high. You know. Right, right. Um, so winemaking is not just that sort of, you know, it's not the academic stuff. It's, it's, it's blue collar work. Yep. And then within that, it's the standards of how, you know, we weren't allowed to drag hoses on the ground, you know? Um, that's not a thing that everyone does in this industry. Like it's about being fastidious. It's about taking care. It's about project management. It's about looking forward. It's about, I mean, all these things that most people don't think about because most people just think about harvest and it's romanticized, right. but you know, those other 10 months, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of thought. There's a lot of caring and curating. Um, there's a lot of cleaning. A lot of, a cleaning. Lot of cleaning, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that first harvest, it kicked my butt. And it, it and, and, and then, you know, subsequently it did. And then they, they empowered me. That was my education. Um, I started taking classes for winemaking. But to be honest, Domaine Serene, it was such a good experience um, that I, they taught me all the things I needed to know how to make wine. Um, I'm, I don't know if you want to ask me like about redox reactions and the microbiology or, or enzymatic, you know, things going on at the very micro level, I will stare at you like a deer in headlights, but I learned how to, I learned how to have a sensory approach right. and then use the quantitative data to corroborate what I'm 
experiencing. Right. And then how to use that data to, if I do have to intervene, how to do so. I mean, that's, that's, that's what I took away from that experience. Um, and I'm, I'll always be grateful. My current ethos is very different. My product line and, and you know, how I approach and the demographic, right? That's very different now. Of course. Um, but I think being in a place with such, uh, such high expectations, I mean, that's still one of the cleanest sellers that you can visit. Oh, I have no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that was what was impressed upon me that it does start. Uh, it doesn't start in the lab. It's, it starts, it starts in the vineyards, but then it starts in the cellar and how, how you work and how you keep it organized. And it's even to things like barrels need to be, I mean, it's even being fastidious from an aesthetic, like, cause we're organizing things. Right. Um, which I appreciate from, I mean, that's, that's from my restaurant days. I mean, that's mise en place. There's a, pl- there's a place and a purpose and a, <laughs> right. for everything. So, right, right. Um, so yeah, that was a really, a really great experience. I only lasted three years there. Uh, the, during the harvest of the third year, I couldn't walk like all of a sudden and I had, I had to have hip surgery and, uh, <laughs> full circle, uh, because I couldn't walk for like a year. Uh, I was put into a cubicle to do compliance, which I was grateful. I didn't lose my job. Right. But then that's where I went, well, I guess I can't do this job anymore. So, uh, and the Evans dads were very gracious. I, I was very thankful, but I left and I got my master's degree and that's when I became a teacher. And, uh, cause I just thought it was over. Right. Um, and I also didn't have the context for it. That was the only winery I ever worked for. I didn't have the context for there's different types of wine. Right, right, right. No, and that makes sense. Um, but yeah, and so um, so I left for about six years, and I was teaching down in Dallas, and I got really ambitious. Kids thought I was cool. I had a cane. Um, but I was an AP lit teacher. I was doing tennis coaching. I was doing all the things. I was the department chair all of a sudden. And, uh, and then lo and behold, after six years, I, I became a statistic, and I burned out. And this is where part of the the name of the brand comes uh that's when my friends at Illahi reached out and said brother you gotta you gotta stay active right um and i think it uh, to me the the quote that that you like to say is no man ever steps in the same river twice uh for it's not the same river and he's not the same man right so you did quite a, a turnaround you know and so you were a totally different man when you went to to Illahi. i was broken i was i was uh I mean, I, yes, I, I, I'm pretty open about this at this point. Um, you know, in our country, particularly with mental health at that time, even, and still today, uh, when people burn out or have a panic attack, even, or whatever, there's still some taboo there, but I think even more so, I mean, I know I felt embarrassed that I burned out. I felt ashamed that I burned out, um, because I was ambitious and, and I thought I was what I was supposed to do. I thought I'd be a teacher for the rest of my life. I love the work and and I felt bad. I felt bad that I, I had to quit because right, uh, right. it wasn't on my terms. Right. And Illahi, uh, and I, I, I tell my friend Brad Ford all the time, he saved my life. I mean, uh, just from myself. I was a different person, but I was also just facing this like existential, well, I thought I, I, thought I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I thought I finally figured it out. Right. And it turns out that maybe I like teaching, but teaching didn't like me. Like the, the pressure of the gig just, it broke me. Right. Um, and so by him bringing me on, uh, I started doing Harvest. And then literally within a couple of weeks, like I was sort of educating 
I was in charge of the interns. I, right. I was starting to do the, It all came back. It all came back. And, you know, within that harvest, I was the associate winemaker or whatever. Right. And, uh, and it, it, that would be unpredictable. Like, that, that was not even my expectation. I was just going to go back just to be busy, just to be healthy, just to uh, – but it was a reset for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then that was a completely different experience from Serene, you know, a little more laid back. We still had high expectations, but more low, more low intervention and experimental. Right. Um, growing the business from 5,000 cases to 10,000 cases. I mean, doubling, du- doubling volume. It's yeah, that's, that, that's a lot there. Yeah. And I was all there for that. So that experience was great from like, how do you take a, how do you take a new brand and sort of grow it, you know? Right. Um, so all these experiences have been really valuable one way or the other. And I can imagine, um, and then going back just a little bit on the, on the anxiety front with this, uh, past weekend when I was at IPNC. Uh, I ran into a tasting room associate uh, who was had pure anxiety for you know all the people that was there, and I'm like, holy cow! I never would have guessed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any advice, you know, for people, you know, who you know who do have that type of anxiety and how to overcome it or how to live with it and accept it? And... Yeah, that's tough. Uh, well, I, I feel like it was either Mark Twain or Ben Franklin. It was one of those guys. I think it gets misappropriated, but there's a saying, something like, wise men never give advice and fools always take it. So it's, it's something right, like right. that. I'm it's paraphrasing. Like that. Right, right. Because, um, it, you know, it's such a singularly unique experience for everyone. I know for myself, anxiety to me, can you, if it's stress-induced, then somehow you have to you have to breathe and kind of relinquish some control. I think that's the, that's for me the hard part. Like I'll get really anxious because I am kind of a control freak. I'm a type A East Coast guy by birth. Right. And so um and so if 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 I feel like I'm not I'm not really in control or if I'm overwhelmed with how much how many things, how many dishes I have to spin, um that can be a trigger for my anxiety and then then it's being paralyzed. But what's really happening is you know, that's fight or flight, being active. Like if I can force myself to just do something to get that energy out and use it in a different way. Right. Um, and one of the things that I love now, cause I do, I mean, I'm starting to get a little more help, but I'm still doing all my cellar work and the days where I come into this winery and I'm not on my laptop and I'm not thinking about sales, marketing, compliance, bills, anything, but all I have to do is rack 20 barrels and clean them and hop in a tank and, you know, get dirty and do the work. Right. Um, those are, those are my best mental health days. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think, uh, and it would be true when I was teaching, you know, my anxiety wouldn't be happening during my teaching because I'd be in it. I'd be present minded. It would be leading up to it right. or as soon as the bell rang at three o'clock and then it would just be like a, t- a tsunami. So to me, some of the survival is, you know, I can't be idle. If I'm idle, uh, my head's going to spin. Right. Right. Um, but I also understand, I mean, I'm an extrovert and, um, I can do jazz hands all day long. Um, but I've been in environments like that, you know, I've, I, where I get kind of anxious because, because if you're beating yourself up inside, there's a weird, I sometimes have the assumption that everyone else is also thinking how I'm thinking about myself, which is a completely irrational it is. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're down on yourself, that's kind of the, the prism that you see the world in. Right. Um, and it's not true. Most, most people aren't thinking about other people. Almost everyone's always thinking about themselves. Exactly. Right. Right. But when you're 
anxious or depressed or, or whatever, or if you're self-deprecating, um, there's this false belief that, well, if I, if I don't think that highly of myself, then that must be true for the whole world. We, it, you know, it's easy to catastrophize. It's very easy to do. And yeah. there's, there's a saying that, you know, that's kind of gone around that I always, you know, try to keep my awareness of is, you know, everybody's just trying to get through the day just like myself. Right. And just have that compassion. And, you know, what would you say to yourself to get through the day? And so right. show that same respect to the other person. Yeah, I, and I, I love that. I've been actually uh, working on that concept of like, yeah, self-forgiveness, self-love, self-kindness. Yes. Because uh, it's one thing to forgive others, but I think, I know for myself, like I, I have a hard time. I will dwell and I will carry a grudge almost against myself, you know, because right. I am going to be my own biggest critic. Right. And sometimes that's a positive thing. Like I tell people for, you know, this thing I'm trying to make that hopefully people take home, drink and enjoy, you know, sometimes I, I don't like it as much as, as other people, but that's my, that's because I, I guess I'm a pessimist in a way. And it's that self-criticism in that case though, that self-criticism can be fuel to, to never rest on your laurels and to, to always be like, oh, I think I can, I think I can do this better next time. Right, right, right. Uh, and I think that's true for like, athletes and you know there's that sort of like i know i scored three goals but i should have gotten four you know there's that, it's that kind of mentality right but then the other side of that sort of self-criticism is when it's not there it's not do like it's an unworthy criticism you know you didn't really do anything terrible or wrong or or, or whatnot or you had good intention i mean a lot of it's intentionality exactly i meant this is what i meant and it didn't go my way and then some people it's like, it's like water <laughs> off a duck's back. Right. And some people like myself, like I will dwell, I will dwell on that, on that, you know, unforced error. Right. Right. I, yeah. I think a lot of us kind of do that. And we just got to be, you know, like you said, you know, love ourselves. Yeah. 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 Shall we try another one of your wines? Yeah. Okay. What are you interested in? I, again, dealer's choice. Oh man. See, I'm going to be self-critical about this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've I've never been exposed, so I mean, uh, I, I can't even. Well, how about my flag? Well, I got a flagship, and then I have some single vineyards. Okay. But flagship sounds about right. Okay. Some Pinot. Yeah. No, that Unless sounds good. Unless you want good. some white. No, Pinot's fine. Okay. Um, so as you're opening that, I have to you know go back to uh, my high school days a little bit and my English teacher. Yeah. Uh, I was deep into. Uh, Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Oh, okay. And I was trying my hardest to get my English teacher to, um, you know, bring that book in, you know, into the class for everybody to read. <laughs> and it was like, I was denied every single time. So my question to you is, how in the world did you get the road by Carm uh, Cormac McCarthy <laughs> into the classroom? How did you find all this stuff out? Is my syllabus out there? <laughs> well, go ask. You, you should hear the questions that I asked Jess and, and Peyton. They were like, what in the world? This is good. Okay. Uh, now I'm, I'm kind of like scared, but I kind of want to hire you to investigate things. <laughs> um, how, so, uh, wait, what was the question? <laughs> how did you get the road into the classroom? Oh man. Um, Cormac McCarthy, by the way, just passed away like a month ago. I did not know that. Yeah. We should pour some out for him here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> um, I was, that was for uh, advanced placement, and I had, I got a grant to get books, and, um, you know, I was teaching down in Dallas, which is a very conservative town, 
Um, you know, he is, Cormac McCarthy is, I mean, one of the best authors in the 20th century, 21st century. Um, I don't really know how I got it. I mean, I, I, I just bought the books. I got a grant. Right. And, I, and at that point, advanced placement, I was the only one teaching it. So, uh, and I think there was a, you know, I, all I had to argue was, this is a college-level class, you know, mm-hmm. people are getting caught. Um, that book is, if you're familiar, it sounds like you are, is deeply disturbing, uh, but also really relevant. I think about that book all the time. I mean, I thought about it during the pandemic. I thought about it during the wildfires, um, because the imagery, right, and sort of like what, where does humanity go when every when everything right. <laughs> goes to hell? Yeah, right. So I, I have a confession. Yeah, uh, I love to read. I don't do a whole lot of fiction. Uh, I got sucked into a book group that is nothing but Cormac McCarthy. Okay. Uh, and so last month was my first introduction to Cormac McCarthy. Oh, okay. And so we read uh, Sutri. And that was such... Oh, I don't know if I know that one. It's, it's a long epic. It's not as dark as some of his other yeah. books, but that was my first inter- introduction. I'm like, holy cow, I got a whole big rabbit hole I got to go yeah. down now. Well, Blood Meridian, that's going to be the one. I think that might be the next one. That's okay. Well, we'll have to catch list. up at, on the... <laughs> let, me know how, <laughs> let me know how you survive that one. But Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it just... Uh, I advocated. Right. I advocated for my students. I wanted to push my students... Um, I also didn't want to just like teach them only Jane Austen and, you know, so many of those classes that turn kids off of reading are the ones where you're like, okay, it's Scarlet Letter, which I now love, but you know, like it's all those classics, which are important in the canon, but are, are, you know, they just, they're not fun to read. Right. And when I brought on, uh, books like The Road, I also, when they, after my students took the AP test, uh, I had three weeks of class. I did an existential unit and we read The Stranger by Camus, which, I mean, I have like, these are 16, 17 year olds and we're like, right. all right, so character just shoots a guy for no reason. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and then we watched, uh, some great movies like Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell and like, and, the, and just wrapping our head around existentialism, which is a pretty, you know, dark concept right. it you is. know yeah. when you're 16 yeah um and they loved it because it was challenging the status quo a little bit right um getting getting to think about things like you know uh when i was teaching the road uh the world was you know pretty pretty good and sometimes you know fiction the benefit of fiction is you can create you know in that book he's creating a world you don't really know where it is it's it's totally uh there's no, nothing specific about location or, right. but how it feels and the reality of like what's potential uh, to happen. Uh, I mean, 16 year olds don't necessarily think about those things. No, no. Uh, and then they do. And I don't know if I did them a favor or not, but I like to think I did. Yeah. No, congratulations. <laughs> and then they got like, uh, they got great AP scores. So that's all that matters. That's great. They got college credit. Yes. All right, so tell me a little bit about this one. Well, since you mentioned the quote, this is uh, this is my flagship Pinot. This is the original label, and on the back is that quote by Heraclitus, who was a pre-Socratic uh, philosopher. Uh, Socrates would be nothing without Heraclitus, and this right. was a profound idea that no man ever steps in the same river twice, for he's not the same man, and it's not the same river. Uh, like that idea, like thousands of years ago was profound. Uh, it doesn't sound so profound now, but I think about that. And this, so this is my, 
you know, Willamette Valley Pinot Noir 2021. Just released uh, to my club first in uh, in May. And four different vineyards, uh, Eola Springs, Holmes Gap Vineyard, Yamhill Valley Vineyards, and a small one that my buddy Michael Lundin farms called Sylvia's in the Eola Hill, Amity Hills. Uh, no new oak, 30% whole cluster fermentation. Uh, again, no synthetic additives. I don't use animal proteins. Uh, this is unfined and unfiltered, which um, is the way everyone made their pinots, but sadly is increasingly... Uh, rare to find an unfiltered Pinot Noir in the Willamette Valley. Um, yeah. But if I don't have to do a thing, I don't. It's a clean wine, and filtering it, in my view, will kind of strip it of some of that tension. Yeah. Um, I'm really happy with this wine. I think the vintage is going to be great. Yeah, no, the 2021 vintage itself is is great. And I I love the fact that you didn't come out with this, you know, for almost two years. All right. Some people are like a year later, they're like, boom, here's my next vintage. Well, we can talk about that. I mean, if you think about it, we had 2020 in there. And right. um, as I'm sure you're aware, there are many uh, wineries, particularly bigger wineries in the valley that did not make wine in 2020. Correct. Well, in 2020, I was on crutches. Uh, we had the wildfires, we have a pandemic, but I was also sold out of wine. And I, I had to make wine that year. I did not have a choice. So... Uh, and I'm really proud of my 2020. Um, it came out clean. Uh, when people ask, is there smoke in there? I go, yeah, probably. But it's not, you know, it didn't smell like an ashtray. Like I, I caught an audible. Um, I picked the, the fruit after it rained, but I still gave it the college try and I made wine. And right. and so I sold through that. And, and uh, to your point, I think, you know, yeah, I was seeing 2021 Pinots released last, end of last summer, fall. Like, exactly. so, so it was, but I think a lot of that is, they finally got through the 2019s. They well, didn't have any 2020s. And everyone was just, I mean, di- distributors, every, everyone's just like, they didn't, if you say 2020, they didn't even want to try no, it, no, regardless of how good it was. Right. And, it, and so you saw, you saw people jumping ahead. I also, in my, in my view, and I think this is maybe more for smaller boutique wineries like me, the people who support my brand don't, don't really care if they're buying a young wine, quote unquote. Because they know it's going to sell out. And so, and the pandemic also made people care less. Because when they were stuck at home and on a Zoom call, right. they were opening $40 plus wine just because they had it. And they weren't waiting three to five years to open it. They were like, right. well, the world's ending. So I'm going to drink <laughs> this now. Um, so things have changed. I think people now know that the, the burden of aging wine is more on the consumer. Uh, and then for me, I don't really hit my wine hard with sulfur throughout its life. And, you know, this is still very much a young wine. It's going to evolve. It's going to last a long time. But my wines generally, when you pop them, they're kind of, they kind of hit the ground running. They don't, they don't really go through bottle shock. Uh, and so I think that also depends on when people release. Like, hopefully people are releasing it when it's delectable and ready to, ready to drink. Right. Um, but, you know, the mar- again, the marketplace is the boss. And if people say, we want it. Uh, why would you, why would you say, no, we're going to wait three more years? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. That, that is very true. And, you know, again, this is a great wine. I, you know, it's to me, you get those, you know, those brighter, uh, those brighter red fruits, it's smooth, it's silky. Um, and then that, again, you have a nice, beautiful lingering finish that kind of holds it in place. And it's, when you said there was no new oak, I was kind of surprised because it, it felt, um, you know, just that, that finish was a little racy is mm-hmm. what I call. 
Uh, and I would have attributed that to oak, but that was... That's, that's skins and stems. Yeah, yeah. that's at 30%. I also do uh, uh, at least 21 days on skins uh, if I can. Uh, the exception would be if, uh, you know, the cap falls before that. But I, I let... I mean, because sometimes I get people from out of state when they visit... And even though they're coming to Pinot Noir country, they'll be like, you know, I'm a big red guy and Pinots are so thin, right? That's sort of like a knock on Pinot. Right. And certainly they can be. It depends when you pick it. It depends how you make it. Uh, I pick my fruit when it's ripe. So um, this kind of differentiates me from some of the natural wine folks that, you know, are zero, 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 zero. Um, You know, if you pick based on acidity so that you don't have to ever adjust the acid, um, you're not going to get as much fruit and you're not going to have as much skin color because maybe you're picking like it just hasn't developed. And, uh, and so those can be highly acidic, really more, you know, more sort of old world, uh, wines, which are fine. Right. I mean, that's your style for me particularly. And, uh, this could just be the way that I came up, uh, uh you know, in the ranks, you know, not that I want, I don't want my wines to be like that California, just fruit, bond. like a Pinot, you can, you can get it ripe and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. fat and have no acid. To me, I think I'm a visual guy. I think about a triangle and I think about balance. And so like on a whiteboard, I had to draw a triangle and on the top would be fruit because fruit's the most important. That's what you smell. It's what you taste. It's what's driving it. I pick my fruit when it's ripe, when the birds want it, that's what the point of a grape is. So the seeds get pooped over there. Right. And so seeds need to be brown and crackle in my, you know, when I crunch them. Stems need to start being lignified because I'm doing a whole cluster. Like, I, I'll let it hang. Some other people will be picking a week or two before me for the same block, right, right. or same whatever. So, so I think that's where I get more extraction mm-hmm. and I get more depth. And then part of that pyramid then would also be in this corner I'd put structure, tannins, and then acidity. And right. for me, Pinot, I kind of want it to be an equilateral triangle. Whereas, you know, some wines, if it's all acid, it'd be a can't do this with my fingers, but it'd be an isosceles or something, right? right. It'd be less fruit, more acid. And so in the middle, that's where I write the word tension. Right. So tension to me is like this, everything, every time you dip into it, you're, it, they're playing with each other. You're getting some, some layers. And, and so the acidity of my wines is very important. Um, and if I have to adjust it, I do, um, using tartaric acid. Yeah. Uh, but still I am, I'm not, the, the tension part and the grip part, like that's why if I don't have to filter it, like I just, I want, I feel like if I filtered this, maybe it would give me an insurance policy by killing everything in it, but wine's still alive. And if you see the process, I mean, it goes from, I mean, if I want to make this crystal clear so I can read my wine list through it. No, I don't want to. Um, well, that's a lot of, well, that's I've, a lot of what people are getting now. Right, right, right. And, but I'm and just I understand, I understand why people do that. It's a, it's a preemptive. Right. Um, but, but it strips the wine of some of the speed bumps in the palate. Right. And I've had, I've had people say that they have Pinot Noir fatigue because they think Pinots are kind of being, they all taste the same. And, and I don't think they taste the same. I think it's that, to me, it's like they want some action on the back of the palate. So if right. I can get that, um, and this is pretty emblematic of the style that I'm shooting for every time. Like I want there to be some, some play on the back of the palate. Yeah. Um, without it being, I don't think Pinot needs a lot of new oak. Um, and so, and, and I've gotten people to, to, you know, there's depth here. Oh yeah. Most um, definitely. Without it being opulent. And that to me is Oregon Pinot, if you can get it. Right. No, I, I, I completely agree. And I was surprised that you did a, a triangle and not a Venn diagram. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> 
So after um, Ilhi, you know, you went on to, to Day Wines and, you know, you made a gruner. Yep. And um, uh, Brianne Day, you know, tasted it and she's like, you need to make this legitimately. Right. So my question to you is, if Brianne hadn't actually tasted that gruner, how long do you think it would have been until you like would have came out with your wine? All right. So that's a really great question. When I was hired at Day Wines, I asked permission. You know, I've been an assistant winemaker and I've been, I've always been, you know, I've taken orders and I know what to do, but like, I've never had the pressure to do it myself. Cause it's one thing, it's, it's still a lot of pressure to, to be the associate or assistant winemaker. Right. Uh, you still got to stick the landing, but there's a very different pressure when it's like, I'm paying X amount of dollars per ton. Now it's my fruit. Now it's, there's no one, like it's only me. It's all me. Yeah. And so I just wanted, I wanted that pressure, but uh, I got one ton of Pinot Noir uh, from Keeler Estate, which is now now in Ticaterra. And I was uh, talk about that. <laughs> and then I got that one ton of Gruner, and I had made Gruner at Illahi, and I really like Gruner. And I I'm not I actually am not a big Chardonnay guy. That's why I don't have one in my lineup. And I just wanted sort of an everyday sort of proletarian or pedestrian white wine. And I had access to Gruner. I was like, great. Yes. And I was literally going to just sell it to friends and family. I mean, that, that's 75 cases each. And um, I had people buy like shares mm-hmm. uh, to help me buy the fruit. And, uh, but I was the biggest shareholder. Right. And so I was literally just going to put, you know, like those Avery labels that say my name is like, oh, at right, a conference. Right, right, right. right. I was literally just going to like put that and my name is Pinot Noir and just like hand it out to people. I had no ambitions. I had nothing designed. I didn't have a name for this thing. Um, so I don't know. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know if this would have eventually evolved naturally to something that I was going to do legitimately had Brianne not suggested, Hey, this is good. Uh, you, you know what you're doing. Uh, use my winery permit to, to, create a label. Right. Uh, and then I did. And so the, it, the, this is the first label, the Pinot and then a Gruner, which I don't have, uh, anymore for this year, but, um, it's coming back. <laughs> um, I, and then I, I would, on whatever free time I would take up to Portland and suddenly my Gruner is being bought by Olympia provisions and Coquine and Quaintrell. And like, I mean, it blew my, I mean, those places I revere. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and, uh, and suddenly that, that's what kind of legitimated the brand. Like when, actually the very first event I did for Ricochet was uh, called Just Pressed. I don't know if you ever went to that. It was at Olympia Provisions. Okay. And it was in December, I think. And it was literally you brought a finished product, but then you brought the next vintage of the same thing. So I had Gruner in bottle. And then I had Gruner a tank sample or a barrel sample, and then the whole idea was letting people taste things that were just pressed, and then you could sell. That's... And it was the first event that I was there representing Ricochet, and I had a line for my Gruner, and Dang. it just and it blew my mind because those are those things to me are still very much surreal. Like I right. still, even though I'm at two thousand cases now and I'm trying to build this brand, when people come up to me and say, "Hey, I see," I I, I bought your wine somewhere else and it, not through me. Like I don't right. know them and like I loved it. Like now there's something happening that still floors me. It's still surreal. It's still very, I, don't, I hate when people say humbling, but I guess I, I, that's the best word for right now. But like, right. Uh, because, because this never was supposed to be and now it is. And now right. it's its own thing. It has its own momentum uh, for which I'm very grateful. 
And yes, uh, and I'm and I always give gratitude to Brian Day for that. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Oh, you were talking about Keeler Estate a little bit, yeah. and that's where you had your first, you know, Pinot Noir. Yeah. Uh, just to hypothesize, just for a second, do you think Antica Terra is going to hold any tastings or out anything out there at Keeler? <laughs> I have no idea. I can't speak. Uh, I cannot speak for what Antica Terra. Well, I know. Is I know. I just do. hypothesize. I mean, it's a. I mean, beautiful... they're right next doors, right? So right. It um... would be. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful setting. And, you know, I was, I, uh, was out there last November and I invis- uh, visited, uh, Nicholas in, uh, Authentique. Yeah. And it's just, it's a gorgeous property. Yeah, for and sure. Just, I don't know. I feel like it would be a shame not to hold any sort of tastings or something out there. Yeah. That's my opinion. Well, hopefully they're listening and then I'll take your advice. That would be great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So you, you've mentioned, you know, being a winemaker, it allows for some flexibility in your schedule and whatnot, so you can spend time with your family. <laughs> yeah. What, what are those cherishing moments that you really enjoy? With- well, see, that's, that's kind of funny. I mean, like I mentioned at the top, you know, it's already August 1st, and I had all these plans to, you know, maybe get a little camping in with the daughter, and uh, I'm a, I became a big paddleboarder. That was my pandemic, you know, hobby that emerged. And, uh, because the hustle is what it is, I mean, we've gotten some vacations in and whatnot, but, uh, I'm finding that I am working all the time. And a lot of that's very positive. I'm stoked about everything. And it it kind of makes me reflect. I've reflected on my parents because both of them were, were business owners, entrepreneurs. And we'd go to like Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we'd be poolside or beachside. And back then my mom had like the huge briefcase that was a cell phone right right <laughs> and she'd be like in a bathing suit but like with the briefcase and like a legal pad like making a uh, crackly phone call right to new york or whatever and always be working and as a child i would just like chide her and be like why are you always working and she's like well because i'm this is i have to mm-hmm. like no i no one's gonna answer the phone for me and I, I kind of get that now. But what we try to do, uh, my daughter and I love paddleboarding. She's into it. So we have two of them. Uh, we just got, I got a chocolate lab. I have a yellow lab. But we got a chocolate lab right before harvest last year. So I still have a puppy. And so we try to spend some time just with the puppies and playing with them, taking them for walks. Uh, but if I can get out to the coast, I mean, the biggest thing for me living in McMinnville, if um, I just need like nature, but I don't have the time to like, hike or whatever right. i literally put the entire family dogs and all in my f-150 and i drive to pacific city and north of cape kawanda there's a, a beach we call it dog beach i think there's a, i don't know the name of the beach and you can drive right on it right and i just put the tailgate down uh get a bonfire going drink some beers watch the sunset play some dogs like those tend to be like if i can get that right that's a that's a solid day that's a solid present moment like situation yeah um, but it's tough. I mean, I, I try like, you know, I, I'm doing a, a pop-up next, next week in Bend and I love Bend. Yep. So my, my family's coming with. That's good. And so we have the pop-up and then we have the weekend to hit Smith Rock or we'll take the paddle boards up to one of those lakes, you know, Elk Lake or something like right, that. Right. And so like, I'm just trying to carve in little, little bits. And that's good. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we did, uh, we did Leavenworth this year. I've never been up there. That's and nice. like, so we floated the Wenatchee. And uh, went to Lake Chelan and just, and that lake is, if you, have you ever been up to Lake Chelan? I have not, no. It is like perfectly clear turquoise glacial water. 
and it is the temperature's perfect and you can just like paddleboard out or people have got pontoons or whatever and it's just it's it's rejuvenating and then it's um there's like 40 wineries it's all vinifera oh dang it's like one of the newest avas yeah i gotta check that out yeah you do yeah yeah drink some wine paddleboard yeah (laughs) very cool Shall we do one more wine, sure. and then we'll do some rapid-fire questions? Yeah. Oh, rapid-fire. Okay. And then I'll, I'll get you out of here. You want to do uh, Tempranillo, just because sure. it's different? Yeah. And one of my culty favorites, I think. Um, have you heard of a, an event that, uh, is, that happens in the fall called uh, Raise the Temp? No. Uh, so Drew and Aaron Allen, they uh, bought Vidon. Oh yeah. So yeah. now it's called Capri. I always mispronounce that. So anyway, uh, but every fall they do a, a raise the temp uh, event uh, at the uh, Shehalem, uh like arts uh, studio. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, there's multiple uh, multiple wineries that are there pouring their their Tempranillo. Oh okay. So it might be something. I got to gotta get in there. Yeah, something to check out. Um, well, this is so. This is from Southern Oregon. Uh, I sourced it from Coventina Vineyards. Uh, it's a little town called Merlin. I don't even think Merlin has like a traffic light. It's south of Grants Pass, sort of on the west side of like you know, the back way to Jacksonville. So it's it's not an out. It's rogue, but then like if you go a little further, then you end up in the Applegate. Uh, Herb Quaddy uh, manages this site, and actually, it was Herb Quaddy who like I was going down there looking for Sangiovese, and uh, then I wasn't enamored with the site or the the fruit uh, of the Sangiovese and um and Herb was like well I have some Tempranillo and I didn't want to do everything that I did at Illahi so I was like I already do a gruner you know <laughs> so uh and they do a Tempranillo rosé which is delightful so uh but I went to go see the site the vines are planted 45 degrees to the sun which if you imagine you know Tempranillo is a big burly thick skin grape that means it's getting the sun on both sides of the vine all day long. Holy cow. Uh, but then, you know, down there, it drops 30, 40 degrees at night. So you get this sort of diurnal shift. It gets real hot. It really builds those skins. I mean, you're getting some good purpley color here. Some great. Uh, but it retains acidity because mm-hmm. um, Tempranillo is notoriously flabby. Um, I mean, I get this. I mean, I might have to adjust it a little bit. But, I, again, this is 30% whole cluster fermentation. It lit up on its own. Um, this does have a little new oak and the irony there is that it actually helps soften uh, or broaden the wine because when you have tannins kind of you know meet with tannins that they right. bind and fall out um and uh and yeah 11 months in, in in oak and it's unfined and unfiltered just like everything else um and it's a i mean the commentary i get and it's usually people think of tempranillo as like a you know spanish rioja Ribera de Duero, and those tend not to be very fruit-centric. They, it's all that sort of uh, saddle leather, tobacco leaf, and this that this still has those markers, I think. Right. But but it has, and it's not opulent. It's not fat. It looks like it's gonna be, but it's uh, it's it's got some blue black like depth, you know, fruit in there that mm-hmm. um, that I I just find like this is. This is what I, so in my, in my club, I allow people to like, you know, I curate, you know, here's your fall shipment, but you know, change it up if you want. I have a couple club members that go, can I just, can I just do all Tempranillo? <laughs> and I go, sure. I mean, that's fine. But it, it, to me, it's fascinating. You know, there are, a, there's a huge group of uh, Tempranillo fans here in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, it, it is surprising. 
how uh, how many people are big into Tempranillo. And tasting this, you know, you're you're right. I mean, that you get that those purple hues, you know, in the glass, which is wonderful. Uh, you know, right upon entry, you know, it's that nice, smooth elegance, and then you can get some of that fruit, and then you know, you definitely get those those tannins, which is like holy cow! I can't wait to see what this is like in ten plus years. Yeah, you can lay this sucker down for yes. sure. Yes. And the only and, and this and the, the reason people ask me why why would I release this because this would be go be a good example of maybe the winery should hold on to it to let it age a bit more over vintage. Um, Right now, because I rent space and this place gets so full, I can't over-vintage in the barrel. Right, right. So, pragmatically, I, everything goes a barrel. But, again, like, I think it has enough weight that I, I released this last Thanksgiving. And it went real well with, you know, the wintertime. Of course. Holidays and whatnot. Yes, yes. But I agree with you. It is a baby. And it can... I would like to see five years, ten years, like hit those marks. So I am, I'm definitely starting a library now, which is kind of a new fascinating thing for my brand. Like, right. Holding nice. back ten cases of each of each product, right? Uh, and I think this will be one that'd be kind of cool to do like a vertical one day and just kind of see, right? Um, yeah, that would be cool. But also, this would be great, you know, uh, for Christmas Day dinner. Oh yeah, you with uh, you know like a primary roast. Yeah. Oh, that'd be so good. Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. Well, invite me over when you do that. I will do so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got some rapid fire questions, and we'll. Uh, uh, reveal the blind wine. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, I already forgot about that. Uh, so, favorite artist to listen to during uh, harvest? Ooh, Avit Brothers. Okay. Uh, favorite indulgent food? Oh my gosh! Quick fire. Uh, favorite indulgent food? Indulgent, like you're just having a bad day or whatever. And you know what? Like... Uh, mint chocolate chip ice cream. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, Rocky Road would be mine. Uh, if you could choose a superpower, what would it be? Uh, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? Like, I feel like I should know these things. You know, I want to say flying, but I don't think so. I'm scared of heights. Um, uh, superpower, maybe just being better with money. Is that a superpower? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to yeah, be yeah. better with money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your harvest notes, are they digital or handwritten? Oh, it's handwritten and they're a mess. Okay. Uh, and the last book you read. I, normally, I ask this question, last book you read. It could be, also be on Audible or a podcast, but I have a feeling you like your hard... Uh, I do. I've been books. trying to do the Kindle. Um, actually, I just finished a James Bond book. I, I read Moonraker. Okay. And that was good. And I, But I'm, I actually have like three books I'm in the middle of. And like it kind of, they kind of stay there. Yeah. I'm reading a book called uh, How to Raise an Optimistic Child by Martin Seligman, who uh, did science on optimism, which, okay. based on our conversation, is uh, a good a good place to to start. And so I want to make sure my kid's an optimist and not right. a pessimist like me. <laughs> but I also just started a lovely, funny book uh, by Sarah Val, who's this like nonfiction essayist, and uh, it's uh, called Partly uh, a Partly Cloudy Patriot. And it's just like little essays on, like she writes a letter to Bill Clinton, like in, this is like 2002 it's written about like right. how, how, what kind of presidential library he should, he should have. And it's just hilarious and great and historically like fun. And so awesome. I'll have to check that out. I, I'm not drinking. I'm, yeah, I'm not drinking. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not uh, reading uh, much uh, fiction, which is what I always taught. I'm, I'm actually finding myself reading more nonfiction. Yeah. I just uh, got a book on phylloxera. Oh, 
and it's riveting. It, it's like 350, <laughs> 400 pages long, and oh it's like gosh. the whole history of phylloxera and how it came, how we got vines from uh, Europe, and then it came over to America, and they went back over to Europe, and then phylloxera. You know, and, and I'm like, I'm fascinated, and I can't wait to to dive. It's into like a it. horror film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Shall I reveal reveal the wine? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, any other comments or anything before I bring it out? Uh, no. You can just... Okay. So, oh, <laughs> man! I was right, Pinot Gris! Yes. That's yeah. dope. I love this wine. Yeah. No, That's why and, I... See? This and, is good. And I know it doesn't have a direct tie to you, but, like, part of the indie winemaker group was Jessica yeah. Payton. And so, you know, it was... You yeah. Know, and, uh, this is rad. I, yeah. You know, I, I and I... I mean, I was trying to get those notes, and there's no way I was going to guess producer, but I feel pretty good about my assessment. Yeah, no, I think, you did I think great. I got it. You did great. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, maybe not skin contact, but that would be the thing. It wasn't direct press. But I think if I – because so it's interesting about this wine too, the connection is uh, my pet nat is from the same – is the same Pinot Gris. Oh. So, and we got it at the same time. So she did skin contact, and I did skin contact, and uh, but mine lit up. And fermented and hers was like cold soaked so that's why it's a really pretty color but we made we, we both made two wines from the same source but then they're completely different animals oh, which imagine. is kind of fun that is fun yeah, yeah. no i yeah their point of contact is is great so yeah thank you for bringing that that's yeah, great yeah no thank you uh i don't have any qu- any more questions do you have anything for me or anything at this point um no i don't know i, I, I didn't realize i could ask you questions it's, it, it's a two-way street. It is a totally two-way street. <laughs> no, I'm just uh, super grateful for the time, and it was yeah. a good hangout and conversations. So. Yeah, no, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me on this flavorful voyage through the world of wine on the Wine Notes podcast. I've been your host and guide, A.J. Winesettle, and it's been an absolute pleasure sharing these captivating stories with you. But alas, like the last sip of a fine vintage, our time together must end. But don't fret, my wine-loving friend. The cellar doors of the Wine Notes podcast will always remain open, waiting for you to return and explore new conversations, stories, and musings from the captivating people behind the magical world of wine. Before you go, hit that subscribe button on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, and don't forget to leave a sparkling five-star review to help spread the word. Until our glasses clink again, remember to savor light's moments and let the spirit of wine and camaraderie linger on your palate. Cheers, and as always, may your wine glass be full, your heart be light, and your journey be delightful.